Welcome back, everybody. Here we've got our fourth episode of the Advent Book Club. We're so glad you could join us. So without further ado, let's jump right in. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you said that this was your favorite chapter, and that's really interesting. Why? Yeah, I loved this chapter. I I think the wise men for me are so mysterious and like magical in a way because we don't know much about them and there's all these different layers and and we've learned some things about them and these certain poetic like deeper meanings of them coming and what they've gifted the Christ child and all of these things. And so I just find that part really amazing, but also I love the flight into Egypt that for, for whatever reason, the flight into Egypt is really striking to me because it portrays so many different virtues in the Holy family and how in the midst of, you know, our lady just giving birth to Jesus and then St. Joseph has a dream and he's, he goes with haste. He, he believes it. He's discerning and he acts on that in obedience. And then our lady, um, follows him in this sort of blind obedience, just trusting her husband and, and going into a sort of chosen exile, right. To leave their family, to leave everything they knew. Um, and I just love contemplating that because there's a sort of darkness in that um but then the light of christ being there and and i just imagine them traveling and holding the christ child with them and what that must have been like is just so amazing it's also one of my favorite parts of the book i wrote that's coming out next year um was these meditations on the flight into Egypt and thinking about what Mary was thinking during that time um, and contemplating that. So I just love all of the reflections in this chapter and it comes at it from an angle I wouldn't know of or like necessarily think about because Ratzinger is so theological and he, he really focuses on history, which is something I want to talk to you about a little bit with this chapter. Yeah. He spends more he does spend a lot of time on that. And he spends, obviously, it's a book about the infancy narrative. So he's interested in what all of this means for Jesus mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. But there's something really interesting in the flight to Egypt. Like you're saying, when you just think about Joseph in particular, not just that it was Joseph who's the one who's told to take this action, but there's so many ways in which this Joseph parallels the life and journey of the old Testament Joseph. Yes. Right. Like he goes down to Egypt, just like the old Testament Joseph Mm -hmm. in order to eventually be the means through which Israel is saved and fed. Yeah. With the grain, the bread. Yeah. I mean, really, it's amazing. You know, he, so obviously there's, plenty of things that that don't happen that are similar, but you have this new Joseph who goes down to Egypt because that's the way that Israel is going to be saved and the world is going to be fed. And then eventually they come back and there's a, there's, there's two different parts of the gospel where Hosea's prophecy is fulfilled because Mm -hmm. Hosea is the, the, the prophecy. There's obviously a lot of prophecy in Hosea, but 
the one I'm thinking about specifically is the one where God promises Hosea that there will come a day where he'll lead Israel back into the wilderness Mm-hmm. to espouse them to himself again. And in a certain way that happens kind of preeminently, I think in a certain way when Christ is driven into the desert by the spirit, sort of recapitulating Israel's journey in the wilderness for 40 days, like he does for 40 years. And so in a, in a certain sense, that's kind of a f- fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy where Christ goes into the wilderness and then, and then comes back out. But there's also a sense in which this is a kind of recapitulation of Israel's history too, where they go down the Holy family, right? In in certain ways, Jesus and Mary both are the embodiment of Israel in kind of these differently perfect ways. And so they go down into Egypt, they go into the wilderness essentially, and then are, brought back. And then the gospel refers to a different passage in Hosea to talk about the prophecy being fulfilled, right? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. And obviously in the in the Old Testament context, the son is the people of Israel as a whole. And here, right, that's it's more it's more personal. Right. It's personified in an actual historical individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is really, um, it is really interesting. I'm so excited to get into it. So that's, that's the second part of the chapter. Um, let's start, let's go back to Bethlehem. Let's, let's talk about Bethlehem. So, so Christ is born, the shepherds came and now the Magi come and Ratzinger focuses so much on who were the Magi and he gives a few different theological views. And I think what, so I'm I'm going to say this. So one of the things that was interesting to me in studying theology when I was in my, you know, teen years and like early 20s when we were in college and stuff was um, there were so many theological views that were wrong. And it can be very frustrating for someone like me. <laughs> like, I, and you remember, I stopped majoring in it, double majoring in it, because I was like, I just can't deal with this. <laughs> It's like all these people are wrong. So <laughs> I was like, I just don't want to deal with this. No, and it and it wasn't like out of pride. It was just like it was more just like scandalizing a little bit. Like why waste your just, time? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like I don't really want to read this. And for you, you were like, I will figure out the truth and I will refute them. You know, like I will I will find the truth and I will explain it. You know, and all of these things. And I think you were meant to and like called to study theology, but like. So I see Ratzinger here, like he's talking about theology and he goes into like the different roots. And now that I'm older, I don't mind it so much. Right. Like it's like, okay, yeah, let's let's look at like these different angles. It doesn't have to be. um... He does mention at a certain point, there's somewhere in there, I think I underlined it right, where at a certain point, theology can become kind of a like just an academic exercise where you're more interested in what you have to say uh-huh. or you're more interested in hearing your own voice essentially he doesn't use those words but that's kind of what he's saying right you're more you're more interested in being right than getting it right right if that makes sense right you're more interested in sort of the the exercise and the debate rather than getting to the reality right that you're meant to be attempting to see and and understand more yes and actually just a slight tangent um, well this whole thing's a tangent okay yeah 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 but but Actually, 
I think, I think what is hard about it is when you're reading, it's, it's not looking at other faiths, looking at things. Cause that's very clear. Like, okay, we have these different beliefs, right. But it's when you're looking at like Catholic theologians and you're seeing like this emphasis that is like clearly skewed, right? So he has these theologians. And I guess my question is, so he, he marks, okay, how many, how many? So the, yeah, there's, know. there's maybe like several, there's several different <laughs> ideas of who the Magi were. And, but then he says, I, I agree with this one. Right. So do you know any of these theologians that he mentioned? Like, are they Catholic? Um, like, are these prominent thoughts in theology? Like, for instance, talking about them as, you know, the Magis as magicians and deceivers and mm-hmm. seducers, like, he obviously doesn't agree that that's true. And I wouldn't either. Like, that doesn't make sense with the Gospels, right? But, like, there are some people who actually think that this is what Magi were, you know? Well, so and so, so with this particular topic, there is a lot of ambiguity because the vocabulary can refer to can can legitimately refer to kind of a spectrum mm-hmm. of different identities as it were right you know what like what what kind of magi were they right i mean so you can you can even tell in english that's sort of where we get the word magic from right, right? and so there's kind of a spectrum of well what could they have been and you can't know for so there there is a sense in which some magi, well, however you would designate them in the ancient world, would have been more involved in sort of wicked practices or, you know, magic and deceit and that kind of thing. And he points that out, how even in even in the Acts of the Apostles, you see the word being used to refer to that kind of person, mm-hmm. right? Simon Magus, right? And so someone who's attempting to, you know, use magic or divinization, right, to sort of um, you know, manipulates spiritual powers to his own end, right? Right. So even if that word, right? So we so we know the word can refer to that, but the very fact that you look at the actions of these magi are obviously that okay, that's not what we're dealing with with these specific ones, right? right? Because no, no, no one like that would do what these individuals do, if that makes sense, right? Right. So it's it's hard to tell what exactly they were. But that's not really too important in the end, right? It's what what's more important is what they represent for the gospel author and their actions, like what they actually say and what they actually do, mm-hmm. regardless of maybe like what they technic their technical titles or you know previous job jobs would have been, for lack of a better word. Right. I loved how he connected it to the. Uh, I mean, one of the the principal meanings of Magi that he said, it's actually the first one that he talks about is that they are Greek philosophers. And I loved that because again, we're talking about like this sort of Hellenistic culture that has begun and how God like used that culture to spread the gospel. Right. Right. So they see, I mean, the whole reason they're there, they tell Herod, Right. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen his star in the East. And mm-hmm. so we've come to, you know, just figure this out essentially. And so on the one hand, you might think, oh, no, they're into astrology. Right. But in the ancient world, right, astrology in the 21st century is not what it's not the same kind of thing as it was, you know, 2000, 3000 years ago. Right. Right. The idea that 
the stars controlled your fate was clearly widespread in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you would also have them sort of interested. It was less a kind of spiritualistic, you know, pseudo scientific religious sort of thing that you do in the newspaper and more it was much more closely wed to legitimate philosophy and science because so little was known about what the stars actually are and what they do there's a whole bunch of theories right and so he mentions the the prophecy of balaam there that would have sort of that seems to have been more widespread than just in israel Mm -hmm. Because why else would these, whatever they are, you know, these philosophers, these astrologers, these priestly kings, whatever they are, right? Why else would they take something like that seriously? And why would it lead them to Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Right. So there, there's clearly something out there outside of Israel that had spread that they were actively looking for and expecting that would drive them however far they had to go. We're not told. Right. We're not told how far they had to travel or how far they had to go. But even if it wasn't that far or made today's standards, it still would have been quite a journey. Um, it could have been could have been quite a distance. Yeah. And I think they were instead of like this focus of them being astro- astrologers. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. It's that they were um, astronomers like they were. They understood. Right. That's so that's kind of what I was. Heavens. Yeah, that's maybe you you put it that way. Right. That's that's probably a better way of putting what I was trying to say earlier. Right. Nowadays, we clearly differentiate between astrology and, and astro- astronomers. Right? Yeah, yeah. Astronomy. Yeah. Two, three thousand years ago, they were kind of the same thing. Right. Because mm-hmm. you were actively tracking, doing the astronomy thing. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of combine your philosophy. If you think that if you think the stars are this kind of thing and they control fate, those two things sort of would have gone hand in hand. Sure. And it kind of takes, you know, it takes a while to sort of separate what's legitimate from that. Yeah. From what's not. I made a note on page 95 that science in its greatest capacity leads to God. And I always think about this because I was thinking about science so much in reading this chapter Hmm. and how like when you delve into science, there's a point where my mom always said this because she was a physicist that there's a point where you get you get to where it's like there has to be a God, you know, like this, this has to be done like who was the first mover who is who is the one like who directing all of this ordering all of this right um and god is ordered so it all sort of makes sense how science and yeah for those with eyes to see that makes a lot of sense and that's clearly what he's talking about here they this is they're the ones with the eyes to see right they don't have revelation but they've heard about this thing. They're looking, they're seeking, they're clearly trying to find something that's true and worthy of their honor right. and worship. And so they go out and they look for it, right? Yes. Why he talks about, it's really, in, the way he puts it is really interesting, this kind of ambivalence mm-hmm. that you find in philosophy and religion where there are two, you know, there's two ways you can go with that kind of thing, right? You can go the way of the Magi, right? Where you're legitimately seeking what is true and you end up in the right place. Or that kind of thing can be used for your own ends, right? It's why philosophy and religion are so easily diverted in our fallen state. And it's why we need revelation 
to make sure that we have a correct view of things. So even if it's technically possible mm-hmm. to know that God exists and his attributes, and it's technically possible to know how to live a moral life without divine revelation through reason because of because of original sin that obscures our intellect and hinders our will it's very difficult to do and so that's why god reveals himself to us and it's why he even needs to reveal something like the ten commandments right technically right they're technically the ten commandments are just stipulations of the natural law but we're sinful and ignorant and so we need to be reminded even of something as simple as that (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think too, what goes along with this, with this sort of, yeah, seeking is they were, they were also Gentiles, right? Like they weren't the Jewish people and they were seeking the truth and God met them in that. And I think that's really incredible and hopeful for every human being is that like, if you seek the truth truly and you know, you're studying and trying to learn knowledge, like eventually you're going to hit this wall of God, (laughs) you know, it's, yeah. I mean, you don't have to be afraid of the truth, I think. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. I don't, well, there's, there's a sense in which if you're a religious person or you're right, you're a Christian, there's a sense in which you can come to believe x y and z about god and the faith and everything else Mm -hmm. and the modern world can kind of convince you especially if you don't have the time to you know read a ton of books and you're not very particularly interested or you know in theology that kind of thing you just like you have a a holy simple faith it can be easy to be kind of tricked into thinking that the modern world wants to tell you all of these things about science and and this that and the other thing that contradict all of your faith and you might you might be worried like and you might think okay well i know that that's not true but like those people are so smart and like they're going to confuse me right Mm -hmm. but you can trust that all truth has its source in god and so if it's good and honest and legitimate it doesn't matter what you're trying to find out if it's true it's going to be from God and lead you to God. Right. No matter what. And what you mentioned as far as them being not Jewish, right? Them being Gentiles. There's I really like that Ratzinger, he uses he calls them forerunners. Mm. Which is really interesting when you compare that to the normally when we talk about the forerunner, we think about John the Baptist. Yep. So there's this really interesting like dynamic where you have John the Baptist as the forerunner for the people of Israel. And then the Magi is kind of the forerunner for the rest of the world. Yeah. Where they both kind of are right there and are involved in these infancy narratives together. And so I just, I thought his use of that word was was really, was really nice. It's also really interesting. So we're, so the shepherds were Jewish, right? Like, do we, are we assuming that? Well, we're not, they, they, they most likely would have been. Yes. I mean, it's not, not technically necessary that they would be. Sure. But it's just something the, the assumption kind of is, I, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's what I I'm, thought, assuming, I mean, I'm assuming. I mean, I haven't read a ton of commentaries about like the shepherd. first century, like, <laughs> you know, first century sort of Palestinian, you know, shepherding practices. Right. Right. <laughs> right? But, yeah. Yeah. Um, that'd be interesting, actually. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> but the so so the Magi are clearly. Yeah, are clearly Gentiles. And I think that's. 
really striking because not only do they come as Gentiles, but they come with gifts and these gifts are meaningful. Yeah. And they're the pres- for a king. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the, the comparison with the shepherds, I feel like that that's more of like a mixture of like the, the sort of classes, right. You know, so mm-hmm. you have obviously the Holy Family's Jewish and they're Gentiles. I mean, we're not really told what the shepherds are, but clearly the shepherds are the poor, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, as opposed to these clearly very wealthy uh, foreigners. Right. Coming and traveling and bringing their gifts. And I mean, most of the, most of the, artistic tradition is always sort of given these three, you know, the three Kings, right. It's sort of associated with that, right. They're always dressed very sumptuously in these sort of rich colors and yeah, you know, they're bringing very expensive gifts. Yes. Yeah. I think we get to the gifts actually later in the chapter though, because we, he, yeah, he does he, all the way at the end. I'm yeah. not sure why he separated it out. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of curious. But, yeah, yeah, it is curious, but so we, we talk about the star now and actually uh-huh. I, right. okay. This is, <sighs> so this, one of the more interesting like things in yeah. the gospel that's most like confusing to be honest like when you really think about it well the star okay but is it confusing though because we see this imagery a lot like we have like our lady star of the sea and then we have a metaphor though. yeah hold on but she's wasn't not there, a star there was another point where there was a star oh you know what it was it was um, Thomas Aquinas. He, I, I, this is not in sacred scripture, but however. <laughs> well, if it's St. Thomas, maybe it should be. It's St. Thomas, right? So let's talk about him. Um, he, where he was residing for a while, like had a star above, and then after he died, it disappeared. So there's something with the star. Did you know that? I read I about like that to the a, children it today. It rings a bell. I was, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I was reading a book to the children today about yeah. St. Uh-huh. Thomas, and, and we talked about that. Okay, so let's talk about the star, though. So uh, um, he goes right into St. John Christendom um, that and, and quotes him that this star was not of the common sort, or rather not a star at all, as it seems at least to me, but some invisible power transformed into this appearance is in the first place evident from its very course. Um, so... We're going to get right, into so this, whether it is a star. Chrysostom's pointing out the obvious, right? This isn't how stars work. Okay. Right? That's his point. Yes. So for me, I was like, is it an angel? Sure. I mean, there's been all kind of speculation about this. And okay. no one has figured it out. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't think anyone ever will. Maybe it's an angel. <laughs> I mean, if okay, if it's an angel, then it's an angel manifesting as something that looks like a star, right? Angels don't have bodies, and so they'd have to appear like they'd have to choose to appear that way. Okay, so that's but, possible. But that's right? kind of what I thought. Was... Sure, no, it's totally possible that that would be the case. Um, he spends a lot of time actually talking about these different sort of, um, as, again, back to the astronomy, mm-hmm. right? So these astronomical theories about, well... What kind of, ha- you know, is there anything happening in the heavens, right, sort of around that time that we could point out that mm-hmm. may have been strange or odd or that, you know, the Magi would have seen like the conjunction of certain planets and, and. Well, there know. was a supernova. So that's, that's the other thing. I was like, well, then it's a super, it's not an angel. It's a supernova. God is just using his universe to just. Okay, so there's two, well, I think there's two approaches star. to this. There's okay. two approaches to this because they say like, 
the the common sort of assumption i think in most people's imaginations is that the star that the magi see is the same star that appears again when they're in the city and that leads them to the actual spot right mm-hmm. so the problem with the supernova celestial planetary conjunction theory mm-hmm. is that a supernova or you know jupiter and saturn merging isn't good like if that if that's what they're seeing wherever they start in babylon or persia or whatever mm-hmm. that event is not what appears again and leads them to wherever they are staying in Bethlehem, right? So would, would it be that something be... that stayed the entire time? So either whatever the star is that they see in the city that leads them mm-hmm. and stays over where, you know, the Holy Family is, right? Either that's what they see wherever they originate from, and then it appears, the same thing appears again, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't, then, then, then it couldn't be something that happens in out in in outer space right it would have to be something that appears like that like an angel or some sort of spiritual entity whatever it is or they're two separate things where they see this supernova or this conjunction of planets out in persia where they are mm-hmm. however long it takes them to travel and then when they get to the city some new thing that looks like a star appears and leads them wherever they are. So they're two different things. I just don't like that. <laughs> well, you have to, you kind of have to pick. You can't, because you can't say, oh, it's a supernova. And that's what led the Magi there. Okay. They say, we saw his star, right, what in the hell? east. But the supernova is not just going to appear as like a little glowing, you know, squid thing and, so, and lead them through the city like a, you know, like whatever, will of the wisp. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it has to be one of the two. And I think I think either one could be possible the way because I went I went back and checked and it looks like the way it's the way it's worded in scripture makes it seem like something appears to them in Persia and then the same thing appears to them there. It makes it the so the way that the biblical narrative is recorded mm-hmm. makes it sound like they see the same thing again. Okay. Right. It doesn't have to be the case. But but that's why Chrysostom, because a lot of people it's stressing me out. Because <laughs> a lot of people will see no, like will want this sort of traditional image of their in their head of this sort of star that kind of floats through the city, like the mm-hmm. will of the wisp. Yep. Right. And they think, oh, well, this sort of thinking that it's this supernova or something else like that must be some sort of modern invention because they don't believe the bible but clearly that's not true because john chrysostom one of the greatest saints in the history of the church Mm -hmm. is offering this theory 1500 years ago essentially because john chrysostom is not a dummy and he he knows that's not how stars work stars don't just appear 100 feet in the air and float through the sky and and lead you somewhere right so that's why he's offering this theory but of it being something else could it just simply be a miracle that god didn't actually work with science and and which science is made by him and ordered by him like i'm all about that but but like what if he just did a miracle and it would be what though i a light in the a, a star that existed for this time period leading people to the christ child and then disappeared I mean, it would have to be the tiniest star of all time, right? Stars are the size of planets and yeah. bigger than planets. Yeah. So that that's the problem. I mean, 
Right. And I do, you know, you do see that. What I mean, could it be like a way of referring to sort of a sort of a providentially arranged fantastic meteor shower? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, that's what I mean. Like it, something was either providentially arranged or there was just a blatant miracle. Right. I don't know what the miracle would be, though, if it was a miracle. I guess just Obviously, the light, a big light in the sky. Right, well, that's why Christendom is talking about an angel, because this is this is yeah. something that we don't think about often in the 21st century. But it's that, an angel, most, guys. that most of Christian tradition does, like yeah. they are very comfortable ascribing, you know, even divine revelation happening through the an work angel. of the angel. Yeah. Right? So the angels do a whole lot more things than we tend to think about in the 21st century. It's, it's just truly amazing. Just don't think about the angels. Yeah. But an angel could very obviously create, you know, be be the means through which this star appears. Yeah. Right. So Actually, I don't have any I don't have any issue with talking having that as a legitimate, maybe even likely theory. So that's my vote. That's like that's where I ended up personally. It is, it is funny though that so. usually like in our nativity sets, yeah, we have both a star and an angel though. Ooh, right? Don't you don't you think that's, that's funny? So interesting. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Because we're never told that there's an angel that hovers above like Bethlehem. Ah, we get the okay. angels out in the fields. Yeah. As far as I can recall, we're never told that there's an angel that's just kind of hanging out with no, I I I assume. I love that. I'm pretty sure that there's no way that you could say there were no angels at the nativity, right? But absolutely not. But that's not but scripture <laughs> isn't talking about the star and the angel both hanging out. But our nativity sets, we usually get both. That's really so. cool. That's mm-hmm. so interesting to think about. And also the fact that like you put on top of the tree either a star or an angel. I mean, really, maybe they're the same. Here we yeah. are. So there you go. This this was cool. All right, moving on. Wait, hold we on. Need, Did, I we want need to see if I read anything else about this. Did you? The star. Um, he takes notes. I don't. I just talk. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I think I said everything that I had written down. Oh, good. Right. It's good. Just that I, the only other thing I wrote down was that it's just another example. If it was a star, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a true something out in, you know, something celestial, it would just be another example of a worldly power sort of leading to Christ, right? Mm -hmm. But even the stars clearly more powerful than the Magi, right? These stars that are supposed to control the fate of the world is submissive to the Christ child, right? Mm -hmm. Leads to Christ. So, you know, the Magi seeking the truth are led to Christ, right? All creation, the cosmos points to this. To Christ. Little baby in the manger. Yeah. Yeah. So now Ratzinger, we're on page 106 at this point. So Ratzinger points to, um, goes back to the Magi and the Magi are coming to see the Christ child. And in Matthew's infancy narrative, um, which was written from St. Joseph's perspective originally, but in this moment, it turns to Our Lady. And so they come and they see Christ and he's with Mary, his mother. So, um, and, and they're adoring him. So why, why this, like, why, why aren't we looking at the whole Holy family? Like when they, uh, I mean, what was, what was, I wonder what Matthew 
Matthew's thought process was in this instead of saying like, oh, just the Holy Family and St. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were there. But Ratzinger explains that it's because um, he's showing that God is the father and not St. Joseph. St. Joseph is the foster father. Maybe he's just out getting ice chips or something. It could be. (laughs) It could be. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a good point, right? There is a lot in the scripture that sometimes you miss it, right? That's it's clearly the son's relationship with the father. Right? It's I'm also, one of the major themes of the gospels, right? So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about at this point, you know, in the end, like if we're looking at the time that Christ is born and how that relates to his death, like we talked about that in the beginning, again, Mary is at his death, but St. Joseph had already died. So... So again, you're just seeing like these two figures, the new Adam and the new Eve together. And I think that's extremely significant. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, my next notes are at Herod. I was trying to keep this episode short. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, we're... Okay, so the last thing I want to say about the Magi before we get to Herod and Egypt Mm -hmm. is that they give these gifts that are meaningful in terms of um, who Christ is and his his divine sonship, his priesthood, um, his kingship. And I think a lot of us know this about these gifts, but I think what I loved that Ratzinger noted was that these are not practical gifts and the Holy Family is poor. (laughs) You know, like these are, these are not necessarily helpful. They're meaningful and symbolic. Yeah, I mean, clearly the Magi never had children. Otherwise, they would have given much more practical gifts. So like at a normal baby shower. <laughs> but um... but these were very meaningful gifts. And and that shows us, uh, I mean, it, it shows me what I was thinking was like they had an insight into who this person was and and how they were going to honor the king. And, and even the fact that they prostrated themselves before him. You know, this is huge. Well, you don't travel that far just for any old baby. Right. I understand I... that. But it's not <laughs> just any king. You know, like they're recognizing that something huge is happening here. Mm-hmm. And also, I just, with the prostration, again, I, I want to actually emphasize this because I think in our modern world, we lack reverence. And this is so important. Like when we approach Christ to approach him in reverence and um, and just seeing like that they quite literally prostrated themselves. Um, we, you know, Josh, like when we would attend the Byzantine liturgy and, and things like that, like some of the, the Easter rite liturgies and stuff, like they, they would prostrate themselves often and um, in different parts of their prayer services. And it was so beautiful and fitting. And I think this is, this is just so important. Like our worship needs to be reverent. Um, and so I just wanted to like make note of that because that really struck me and like how we approach, approach the Christ child in intimacy and in personal relationship. Yes. But also with a sense of like the fact that he is king mm-hmm. of the entire universe the world all everything heaven and earth you know well, there's shades of the 
you know, there's there's shades of the the queen coming to visit Solomon in okay. the Old Testament, right? When he and he's there, and the, the queen comes up to sort of see his wisdom, mm-hmm. right? And then you know, offer offer gifts, this kind of thing. And so there's there's a kind of similar dynamic happening, I think here, right, where you have these sort of foreign powers right coming to sort of to, to come and see like figure out like what's 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 the big deal right what what are we what is this thing right and come and then obviously they're prepared right you're not just picking up gold frankincense and myrrh at the you know bethlehem in gift shop right so that's clearly something that's been thought out and prepared you know long before mm-hmm. right so not like someone like me would buy Christmas presents, right? So, oh no, it's Christmas in four days, right? But <laughs> they've thought about this ahead of time. And um, so they're they're ready essentially mm-hmm. too, right? That's another kind of key insight, I think, for a kind of spiritual reading of this, that they come prepared to Christ. Yes. It's not something that's just done haphazardly or, um, you know, spur of the moment, right? Not that that's not possible, right? But they they think this through right and they're prepared to meet him right in a way that's appropriate yeah yeah so what are your thoughts on herod uh imposter king Mm. right that's kind of the problem with that's why the essenes are out in the desert like when it's you know there's kind of a lot of um a lot of good evidence that john the baptist was associated with the Essene Jewish community mm-hmm. where they were the Jews, right? Cause it's, you know, some, something a lot of people don't think about is they tend to think about first century. They tend to think about Judaism as like this one thing, kind of like Christianity is this one thing, but right. there's a certain sense in which it's more appropriate to talk about first century Judaisms. Mm-hmm. And it's even obvious in the gospel, right? That you have the Pharisees or this, they think this is how we need to live out the law and interpret scripture. Then you have the Sadducees and they have kind of their own idea and Pharisees and Sadducees don't even agree on what scripture is. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, they were told, you know, the Sadducees think it's only the, it's only the books of Moses. Pharisees kind of take everything. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are arguing about the resurrection of the dead or whether angels exist and things like this. But, and then the Essenes, they decide, well, Herod's an imposter King. And so this new temple he's trying to build is obviously not legitimate. So we're going to go hang out in the desert and do our own thing. And mm-hmm. we're going to sort of build our own community and we're going to practice celibacy and all of this sort of really interesting stuff leading up to sounds very carnal. Um, well, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's what, you know, it's one of the reasons why. So John the Baptist seems very, <laughs> uh, very similar to this. And yeah, I so I loved him. Well, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, if you read, grab one of these books, maybe, I'm pretty sure that John the Baptist is, like, one of the, you know, an important saint for the Carmelite community mm-hmm. because of his lifestyle and, and that kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. so, I mean, Herod is sort of, sort of seen widely as, at the very least, kind of like an illegitimate successor to the throne of Israel, and at the worst, this kind of homicidal maniac um, that we see in yeah, the gospel. He's crazy. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So there's like this, this question of, you know, well, would this really have happened? And, and a lot of the questions about a lot of people that sort of question whether Herod would have actually, you know, um, 
demanded the slaughter of the innocents is it mm-hmm. seems really excessive on the one hand and it also kind of fits too neatly with this kind of new moses typology of jesus well that's what you know it's it kind of there's too many parallels with you know moses's birth and the, you know the slaughter of the children then and that's what happens now and so the gospel writers clearly just kind of inventing this so that he can sort of draw these different parallels between sacred history but actually if you read the history mm-hmm. even outside the gospel records you know extra biblical history corroborates the fact that Herod was a homicidal maniac. And so it's, mm-hmm. and also Bethlehem wasn't that big, you know, it's not like, you know, the mayor of New York city, you know, demanding every two-year-old, you know, where it would be tens of thousands, right? Bethlehem is a tiny little city, right? Mm-hmm. It's probably just a few dozen mm-hmm. that would be that age. Not that that makes it any better, right? Nope. But it's, it's perfectly historically plausible that that would happen. Um, and it's, you know, it's, he killed his own, he killed his own children right. to make so, sure that he would stay king. So, so why not just kill a, you know, a couple two-year-old Jews out in some podunk Israelite town? Yeah. I did not know that, like in history that he killed two of his own sons or was it three? I think it was more. Yeah. he was three. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. That he killed his own son. So like he was not well, um, and there was a lot of death because of it. Okay. Yeah. I don't have any extensive thoughts on that because I just sort of read through it and I was like, I don't yeah, like no, you. You're the bad guy. I think so. the thing that's important from that, that, that Ratzinger points out is that there's the really interesting line after it. Cause it's clearly Herod is troubled by this news. Right. Like, Oh no. Right. I have to make sure that I can re- maintain my power. Mm-hmm. But the following clause in the verse is that, and all Israel is troubled with him. Yes. So this is really interesting. And you would think, well, why would that be? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, he he points out, I think the most logical solution to that is that Israel is troubled with Herod because they're worried what Herod's going to do. Right. If your leader is sort of unhinged and uh, capable of bloodshed Mm -hmm. and he gets upset, then you're going to be a little bit worried about what he might do. Right. Right. Um, But but. Ratzinger sort of leads us into the direction of, again, taking this kind of um, spiritually and pietistically in the sense, okay, well, how would that, how would we sort of associate ourselves with this, with this biblical text? And the sense is that, you know, Christ, the, the, the appearance, the advent of Christ troubles Herod Mm -hmm. and it troubles Israel and it should trouble us. But in a, in a good way, right? So we, yes, should, we shouldn't be afraid of this. the appearance of the Christ child, right? But the, the idea is that there's there's so many instances, it's much more obvious in the public ministry of Christ that he says a lot of uncomfortable things that make us uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? Jesus says a lot of things that should make us uncomfortable that sort of push us out of our comfort zone. But even this this instance, right, that the advent of Christ should trouble us in the sense that we should allow him his presence, his person to kind of shake us out of our apathy, mm. right? That we should allow ourselves to be uh, moved by this. And even this. monotony, like enter into the mystery mm-hmm. of God. Like life, it's like John Paul II says, like life with Christ is a wonderful adventure. This is true. When we yeah. enter into the mystery, everything we do is transcended. And there's a sweetness that comes with the grace mm-hmm. 
of God. Because everyone that's associated with the Christmas story and the gospel is troubled in some way. And if mm-hmm. you think about, okay, well, who are the who are the people outside of you know Mary and Joseph, right? Who are the people that are sort of troubled and shocked, right? but in a good way? You think think about the shepherds. Sorry, I haven't talked much about them, but um, you know, there's a reason that angels appear and show up and they say, "Don't be afraid," right? Right. But so clearly, the, the shepherds are just hanging out in the field in the middle of the night doing their thing. Maybe. I mean, maybe asleep, who knows, but then all of a sudden one angel, then a whole, you know, tens of thousands of angels appear. That's clearly going to be a very shocking event. Right. And so, but that's a good thing for them because they're not shocked into silence. They're not terrified. They don't run away. They don't sort of misunderstand, Mm -hmm. right. They, the angels appear, they do their thing. They leave and the shepherds are like, let's go do what the angel told us to do. Let's go check this thing out. Right. Let's, Mm -hmm. this is really, and you'd have to do something again, if they're good shepherds, they would want to stay with their flocks, but it's something that forces them away even from their normal routine, right. Out of their job, out of their duty, right. That they would sort of normally be expected to do, right. It forces them out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I didn't really have many thoughts on Herod. I, I think at this point we move on to the flight into Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know much about anything that happened in Egypt. Those are almost lost years in a sense that like, there's such a mystery. Um, right. But it's so significant and meaningful. And I really think we should pray with this. Like there, there's something so trying about this time for the Holy family. I think uh, like there's a real darkness that comes in this um, and that they have to leave their homeland and everything they know to go into a foreign land and be exiles and start anew and not know when they will return. Um, they, you know, they're not able to make plans. They're not able to settle in or settle down, you know, all these things that we can take for granted at, at times the Holy family didn't have. Um, I think it's just really striking what they went through in the flight into Egypt. Yeah. I mean, I think that idea of the unknown is interesting. Right, that you kind of expect, they, you'd imagine they'd have certain expectations, right? Yeah. Of how things would go, or, you know, at the very least, that they just get to stay in Israel, right? <laughs> right, right. Stay in, you know, stay in Bethlehem, right? Or, you know, or um, in Nazareth, right? Because Bethlehem is sort of Joseph's hometown and Nazareth is Mary's hometown. And you think, well, at least one of those two, right, was where we'd end up. But no, you end up fleeing, you know, hundreds of miles to the to the south. Right. Right. Sort of essentially where for a few years until uh yeah, like the last place you'd expect, essentially, right? Especially if you're, you know, it's it's really interesting because in the Old Testament scriptures, right, the Psalms, for instance, mm-hmm. right? It's you know the the two bad places are Babylon and Egypt. Yeah, right? and so Egypt is kind of it's like the bad the bad place, right? You got you have bad you have bad history. You know you're right. you're in Israel. You have bad history with Egypt, and so that's that's where that's where you end up going. It's it's kind of this very interesting reversal of expectations in that sense. But again, that too is sort of par for the course with the gospel message and with 
you know, Christ's advent too, right? Just reversal of expectations all over the place. Yes. And what's interesting too, is that, so you're looking at the Holy Family and um, so you have Our Lady who is perfect and then the Christ child who is God um, and man. Um, and, and then you have St. Joseph who is not perfect, very righteous, right? Very holy, very good, but not perfect. And he is the one to receive the dream and lead the Holy Family. And he acts in discernment and a proper discernment and prudence, and then also obedience and follows um, the command in the dream. And this is so beautiful because it shows us a lot about the nature of the family and how God, even in this instant, used St. Joseph. You know, he he spoke to St. Joseph. He could have spoken to Our Lady, right? Like she is so perfect and pure and um, and without sin, but he spoke to St. Joseph to lead and protect Mary and Jesus. And I think that's something really profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's described as just, Right, which so there's there's not an assumption that you know there's there's nothing about about Joseph that we would assume would be not up to the task. Mm-hmm. Right. He's specifically chosen for this. Right. And there's there's almost a sense in which the past couple of centuries there's sort of been a like a new appreciation, maybe, for the role of the person of Saint Joseph mm-hmm. that wasn't as present in you know the first you know the first millennium first 1500 years of the of the tradition or so but there there is a sense in which we've kind of thought a little bit more about this and about what the the marriage between saint joseph and our lady would be like mm-hmm. right and what that would mean and at the very least right, there's a lot you could say but at the very least he's set right here and providentially chosen to be the one to take this job and fulfill this unique vocation right not in the same way that mary is right but his predestination is is something very curious right he's nobody else sort of is meant for this job right it's joseph in particular and but it's there's also a sense in which the family is in other ways just a very human family and we're told that christ himself submits to his parents and you know grows in in wisdom and favor with god and men and so you know how much more so would the the genuinely human persons in the holy family you know sort of take that same trajectory too right this continual growth in wisdom and obedience to god right that's exactly it and I think that leads perfectly into Nazareth. Like now there, you know, there was a dream and there was another dream and it was like, go back to Nazareth. And that's where he goes. And it's this small town that, you know, no one thinks much about. And that's where they settle down into these quiet and sacred years of silence that we don't know much about. um, Until Christ is 12 years old. And he's in the temple. And this is the epilogue of the book. So it's the very, very ending. And it talks about, um, it talks about Christ being lost when he's 12. I thought it was interesting that um, 
Ratzinger pointed out who had to go on this pilgrimage and who was required to go, and that technically Our Lady and Christ would not have had to go, but it shows that they're a pious family and that they did go. And that reminded me to sort of do that extra thing, you know, do, do that extra devotion, um, go to that extra mass, et cetera, et cetera, you know, just not just doing the bare minimum, but giving our whole selves to God and being pious in that way. Like they showed this, the Holy family showed a piety in this. And I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that our lady and Christ didn't have to go at those ages, Mm -hmm. but they did. Um, and then, so, so Christ stays back and, and also, uh, Ratzinger points out this freedom that's within the Holy family and that they didn't know where he was all day because he was 12 and he was with his friends and other family and things like that. And, um, not helicopter parents, right? Exactly. <laughs> but also, yeah. Giving freedom, like at that age, it's really appropriate to give a certain level of freedom and, and, you know, have that. Um, there, there's so much I could say about that. I'm not going to get into it, <laughs> but, uh, but he goes, he, yeah, we're, we'll talk about parenthood another day. <laughs> but, uh, it, so, so Christ is gone and they figure it out in the evening and, and they have to, they have to go retrace their steps back and look for him. And when they get to him, he says, you know, I'm doing my father's work. I'm in my father's house. So this is again, showing that Christ's father is God, the father in heaven. And that St. Joseph is the foster father, but it wasn't in this disrespectful way that Christ is saying this, like, this is, this is, um, showing deep theological meaning to like his, to his action. Um, and I think that's something to be said for and to like, to think about. So, yeah, well, I always think it's really, I always think it displays a real warmth. I think when, when, when Mary says, when Mary calls Joseph, Jesus's father though, at the same time, mm. right? She says, your father and I have been looking for you. Right. So it's not like, oh, Joseph's just like this third wheel. We don't really need you, but you kind of just hang out and like, you know, you pay, you know, you pay for all of our stuff. And <laughs> we live in your house. Right? So it's it's not, he's not like this, this sort of old that there's there's kind of like there's there's a bunch of different sort of ways that the traditions kind of imagine Joseph. And one of them, probably the one that I hate the most, is that he's just kind of this old decrepit kind of yeah. You know, he's just sort of the Josh hates this. The meal ticket, right? Yep. Essentially. You know, well, Mary has to say she needs somewhere to live. So let's just let's get the old guy who we can kind of trust Mary with. Yeah, it'll be fine, right? But it's not, it's you know, I think that's that's a really silly way of because you think he was young honest. and attractive and like yeah, i mean not not that he's the same age as as you know not that he's a teenager too when all of this happens like right. I, I don't think that maybe he's 20 i mean it's, po- I mean, it's <laughs> possible right but yeah he yeah. usually could have been 20s and 30s i mean that's sweet you know they we tend to think a little bit differently about the age gap between spouses nowadays but you know for most of human history that wasn't the case so like regardless of how old he is right it's not really mm-hmm. the point but the, my point is more like he's not just this sort of barely necessary add-on to the family right mm-hmm. if, you, if you have you know if you have the theotokos calling joseph jesus's father your father and i have been looking we've been worried about you right that it's that's such a warm human thing to say mm. right and so i think that there's 
and that, that that that's almost it's one of the reasons why i tend to think you know i tend to like you know christmas i feel more like attached to the the holiday of christmas than than easter right he ratzinger even points it out right easter is this holiday that sort of breaks the boundaries of what we know as human beings and like it sort of transcends space and time and there's a lot about the resurrection that's very sort of just totally beyond us right but but christmas um and obviously you know we're not talking about Christmas anymore. We're talking about the you know finding twelve year old Jesus in the temple. But since it's in this context, mm-hmm. right? It's it's such a sort of profoundly human moment, right? That you just have these parents like, "Where's our kid? You know, we haven't seen him for three right. days. We're worried, right?" And so it's but again, as I think you were mentioning earlier, <laughs> this connection to Passion Week. Right, where again, it's these sort of three days of darkness mm-hmm. right, where they're waiting. He's not and it's, there. It's one and, of, but he appears again at the end on the third day. Right, and it's one of another one of Mary's um, sort of dark times, right? And where she can really relate to us when you know those moments when we feel not close to Christ, even though we're seeking him with all of ourselves and we just can't find him, right? Like we just were searching, searching in this darkness. And he does this sometimes like this is very much a part of the spiritual life. We can read this in John of the Cross and, um, and in the great spiritual writers of how he, we go through these times of darkness and where we have to seek him and can't feel him, can't find him. And our lady and St. Joseph went through this. They were anxious. They were fearful looking for him. Um, and, and I think about that and because our lady was never sinful, right? So this was like a, her, her stirring in her heart, this sort of like holy anxiety to find Christ. What was her experience of being separated from Christ? Yes. Yeah. But isn't that so consoling that even the mother of God sought him and in her perfections had to go or or just was permitted to like go through this. It's so consoling to us because that like that's what we're supposed to do in all moments, in all all times, in all chapters and seasons in our life to just continually seek him. What do you think Jesus was talking about? You know, I always wonder. I'm assuming he's he's teaching the scriptures, like he's he's just articulating the Old Testament. I mean, he amazed those old men. Hmm. <laughs> those old men. <laughs> All right, everyone. It was so good to go through this Advent book study with you. Let us know if you liked it, what your thoughts were in the comment section on the Substack page, or if you want to DM us on Instagram, you can follow us at Theology and Reality and A Mother's Lace. We are there. We hope to do more of this. Let us know your thoughts. We had so much fun doing this with you and we we wish you a very very happy and merry christmas filled with many blessings yeah i mean we'll be back for lent with another one um so like after this the theology and reality page will go back to doing the mariology videos every week uh so that'll be fun 
Uh, but Lynn actually occurs pretty early this year, I think. So it won't be long before we do another book club. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Can't wait. All right. Good job. Good job. High five. High five. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha